our scripture reading today is Revelation 2, 12 through 17, in honor of God's word, remain standing. Listen as I read. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so, they, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you, uh, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so, you know, we are in a series, if you've been around, we are in a series in uh, walking through the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church in, uh, to, to the various churches. And so this is Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And uh, today we get to look at the third church uh, that Jesus writes a letter to. Uh, if you were here last week, um, you, and you can just look in your Bible and see, it's, it was only a few verses. Uh, Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna was very, very short. Uh, the, the letter this week to Pergamum is just a little bit longer. Um, so, but still, uh, Jesus kind of uh, offers these insights, and they're, they're, they're incredible. They're, they're piercing. Um, they are so powerful in just, in just a, few, a few verses. And so today we get to look at this third church, the church of Pergamum. So as we've done uh, in our, in our uh, series um, so far, just take a quick minute and talk about where this church is located. So Jesus writes this, and it's to the church in Pergamum. Uh, and, and these are cities that maybe you've heard of before, maybe you've never heard of them. Uh, some of them still exist. You can go and, and visit the remnants, and some, some of them are, are gone. Uh, but the city of Pergamum was an important city. Uh, it had been a place of significance for at least 400 years. By the time Paul, or by the time John uh, wrote down Jesus' words here. So this is a city that's not new and upcoming. It, it's, been, it's been powerful, it's been significant, and it's been significant for a long time. It played key roles in both the, the Greek and the Roman, uh, Roman eras. Uh, commentators mentioned that it was one of three cities that were kind of vying for the supremacy in, in their region. And so it had, it had significance, it had been around for a long time, and it wanted to, to retain its place of, of significance. Uh, the estimates are that it, the population was 200,000 people, and uh, 200,000 people is a pretty decent-sized city in our culture. It was a very big city uh, in, in the first century, and so uh, it was a, a, a significant city. Pa part of its significance uh, is that it, was, uh, it had a lot of temples, a lot, lot of, a lot of uh, various kinds of worship uh, were going on in Pergamum. And you might say, well, wasn't that every ancient city? And, and, and to a degree, yes. Uh, but as you would guess, some cities had, had significantly more. And Pergamum was known for this. L lots and lots of tables, uh, temples. Uh, had temples to ancient kings uh, from previous dynasties. Uh, there was a really notable uh, temple or, or uh, altar to Zeus. Uh, healing, uh, temples for healing and places of healing was a big deal there. 
And then something that a lot of commentators point out is that Pergamum was known for the role that the imperial cult had, uh, had played and was playing uh, in that city. And the imperial cult uh, is part of the Roman story, and, uh, which did not happen immediately but developed over time, where eventually uh, the, Roman, uh, the, the, the Roman culture began to, to worship uh, Caesar. And there was a phrase uh, that the citizens were expected to say, and that phrase is, Caesar is Lord. And Pergamum had a significant footprint for the imperial cult. Uh, and it led to, well, it's the chicken and the egg, which came first. But it had incredible political power and cultural influence. And a lot of, uh, a lot of assumption here is that that imperial cult, that footprint of worshiping, the, of worshiping Caesar, led to this dynamic of, uh, of political influence and political power. Uh, the culture of the day was on full display uh, in, in the city of, of Pergamum. Uh, as I read about it, it felt like maybe you could take New York City and Washington, D.C. and like put them together. Uh, like Both of those dynamics, the cultural influence and the political power, uh, kind of together in one place, which is quite something uh, to, to imagine. Well, if, if you've been here for the last few Sundays or if you've read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, then you might know that in each of these seven letters... Jesus reaches back into chapter 1, into the introduction that Jesus gives for these letters that he writes, where Jesus says, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. Then in chapters 2 and 3, he writes a letter to each of these seven churches. In his introductions, he reaches back to chapter 1 and pulls just a little bit, just a little slice of how he talked about himself in chapter 1. And these little slices that he pulls often function as a hint it's like a little bit of a, a hint about what Jesus wants to talk to that specific church about. So in Ephesus, uh, he says that he is the one, when he wrote that letter, he says he's the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. And there's this sense in which the seven stars were the messengers, maybe the lead pastors. And he's indicating that as I critique your church, I'm going to say something here. And I want you to know I hold the leaders in my hand. He says, I walk among the lampstands. I'm with you. I'm present with you. And so as I call you to this, I want you to think about the fact that I'm present. Uh, when Jesus writes his letter to Smyrna, he reaches back and pulls out the phrase that Jesus was the one who died and came back to life. And so as he talks to Smyrna, he's talking to a church that's suffering. He's talking to a church that's facing physical danger. And as Jesus talks to this suffering church, this, this small, fledgling, suffering church. Jesus wants them to be thinking about the fact that the one who's writing them this, this letter is the one who conquered death. So as Smyrna faces death, Jesus says, look at me through the lens as the one who conquered death. And as I say these words to you, uh, I want that to be part of the way that you understand them. Well, what about Pergamum? Well, as you'll see in, 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 the, uh, in the first verse of this letter, in verse 12, he says... Uh, Jesus, talking about himself, who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And the Bible uses this imagery a few different times. The book of Revelation uses this Im imagery a couple different times. And this is, this is talking about this idea, the sharp, two-edged sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. And it's this, this, this declaration or this, this idea that Jesus' words have power, that Jesus' words function like a sword. 
And so Jesus is reminding this church, as he gets his letter going, he wants to start right off by reminding them of the truth of his word, of the power of his word, that his word cuts, and it cuts deeper than uh, the, book of Ro- uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that it cuts deeper than we could even imagine, all the way down to the depths of who you are. That's what Jesus' word does. That's how it functions. It's like this sharp, two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And so, as we consider what Jesus has to say to the church at Pergamum, he wants to do it in light of the power of his word, the significance of the truth of what he has to say. Well, Jesus has this pattern, and he starts off with a description of himself, and then he often gives a commendation, and then followed by a confrontation. And so Jesus just introduced himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword, Um, And he follows his normal pattern in this letter, but he does open with a comment in verse 13 that really sets the tone for for the rest of the letter. And if you have your Bible open and you look at chapter 2, verse 13, this is Jesus' first words in verse 13. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Now, imagine if you got that as a random text from a number you didn't know. That, that would be a little unsettling, I think, a little, little, little scary to end up with, like, I, I know where you live. But Jesus doesn't necessarily mean this to be scary. Uh, I think he means it mostly to be comforting. Jesus is saying, I know your situation. I know your context. I know where you dwell. And then he gives a, a little bit more information. And he says, where the throne Uh, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell. I know your location. I know your situation. I know what's going on around you. And I know it's where Satan's throne is. In verse 13, he references this again. He says, where Satan dwells. And so there's something significant about the dynamics of the city of Pergamum where Jesus actually just wants to start right off by saying, I know your situation and I know... That, that, that Satan's footprint is there in a unique way. And it seems like Jesus is talking about the overarching culture of Pergamum. All, all of those temples, the imperial cult, and the pressure to declare Caesar is Lord. When the people of God declare Christ as Lord. A biblical scholar, John Stott, he, he writes that the battle in Pergamum was not against people, but against ideas. It was not necessarily against good and evil, but against truth and error. And so as, as Jesus talks with this, with, with this church, and he, and he, he means to, to come alongside them and to start off with this commendation, even before he gets to the commendation, he says, look, I, just, I, want, you, I want you to know. I know exactly where you're at. Think of New York City and Washington, D.C. being mashed together. Jesus comes to them and says, I, I, I know what it must be like to live there. I know what it must be like to have that kind of a culture, to have that kind of political power. I can imagine what it is to live there. So this pressure, this, this reality of the city in which they live, it, it's a cultural pressure. So as I was uh, thinking about this sermon this week, you know, it, it kind of struck me that there's two different ways to steal. You know, one way that you could steal is that you could mug someone. 
and physically, like literally steal their purse or steal their wallet. You could take their items directly from them. But the other way to steal is to con somebody. It's, it's to, you know, it's, it's Bernie Madoff. It's to come alongside with a, a great, great pitch. And you, you tell this person things that are partially true or not true at all. And that person then willingly gives you their money. You see, both are wrong. Both are stealing. But in the first option, something is forcefully taken. While in the second option, something is freely given. And you know, last week we saw that in the church at Smyrna, what they were dealing with the persecution, the suffering. It would be right to look at what was happening in Smyrna and say it was a frontal attack from Satan. They were physically attacked. They were financially oppressed. They were verbally abused. But here, the church in Pergamum is facing a much more subtle attack. It's much more like a con. It's much more like a whisper, an indirect attack. Notice that Jesus says Satan is involved in both situations. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says Satan's involved in Smyrna. And then in verses six and, or in verse 13, he says that Satan is involved in Pergamum. In Smyrna, they were being severely pressured to give in. While in the current situation in Pergamum, it's much more like a con, where the people of God might be willing to give in. It might just make sense to give in. All of that cultural pressure, all of that political power, it all makes so much sense. All your neighbors are doing it. It's how the world works. It makes so much sense to live the way of the average uh, uh, resident of Pergamum. It makes so much sense that the people of God are, are almost wooed into just willingly giving up. Smyrna, they were physically forced to. Ironically, you know, if you look through church history, the, the evidence is kind of ironic. I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, when, when the direct approach happens, when the more aggressive attack happens, it usually backfires on Satan. Maybe you've heard the phrase that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, throughout, the, throughout church history, when Christians have been oppressed, the church stands up in amazing ways. The church is refined and the church becomes stronger and more beautiful. Maybe not numerically, but spiritually. Their roots go deep. And throughout church history, it's been a beautiful thing to watch the church flourish, even as the church is persecuted. But what about the subtle attack? What about the world in which the environment, it's, it's, not, it's not a front attack. It's much more like a whisper. It's much more like a con job. It's much more like a, 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 this subtle invitation. Well, when you look through church history, that's had quite a bit of success. And I would say that you could make the case that it's had quite a bit of success right here in Western cultures. Christians in the United States of America. I often consider my own life and my own, our own church and think, we, we, we're fat and happy. As we, as we navigate our world, there is not a significant frontal attack at all. It's much more the whisper of materialism. 
It's much more the, the indirect invitations of just looking around and saying, well, that way of life makes so much sense. Why, why, why would I agree with an, a 2,000-year-old book? Everyone around me, look, look, at, look at how they live. Look, look at their opinions. In Smyrna, they faced the front-on attack. In Pergamum, it was subtle. And in Pergamum, it was a hard place to be a Christian. Jesus actually says Satan's throne is there. In Pergamum, the current culture is running the opposite direction of God's good design, but it makes sense. It's what everybody's doing. It's the way everybody around them is living. And it is so easy to just willingly join the crowd. So here in Pergamum, the pressure was severe, but it was more subtle. That's not to say that it was never direct, that it was, it was always subtle. Sometimes it was quite blatant. And look at what Jesus says as he, as he moves to his commendation. In verse 13, the second part of verse 13, he says, Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. And then he talks about uh, one of their people, um, Antipas. He calls Antipas my faithful witness. In verse 13, look what happened to him. He says, you, you held fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So while Pergamum might be this general cultural pressure, just the stream of the culture is pushing them away from God, there are times, or there have been times, where it's been quite obvious, where it's been quite a direct attack. And Antipas is one of them. Antipas was killed for his following of Jesus. When you see what Jesus commends them of, he says, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. I think it's right to see this phrase and recognize that what Jesus is talking about is the message of the gospel. This phrase includes two things. He says, you did not, you, you held fast to my name. In other words, who Jesus is. They had the right guy. Jesus as son of God. Jesus as savior of the world. Jesus as the one who came and lived a life that was perfect. They have the right guy. They held fast to his name. But then a step further. Faith. You know, there's a passage in the Bible that says even the demons know. They, they know all about God. They know all the data. They know all the details. But they don't believe and the call upon the people of the world is to hear the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done and to respond to that news in faith. To actually transfer your trust, to put your hope in this Jesus to rescue you. So in other words, Jesus looks at this church and he says, here's the deal. You've got the right guy and you've put your faith in the right place. You've held to who Jesus says he was. And you've put your faith in this Jesus. They did not deny Jesus or their faith, even when their friend Antipas is killed for it. You know, the clear reference is, or inference is that he was killed for his belief. Antipas is, is actually the first Christian to be referred to as a witness. You see how Jesus talks about him? He says, my faithful witness. 
Do you know what the Greek word for witness is? Martyr. That, that, the Greek word for witness is martyr. Antipas is, in, in some ways, he's the first one that is called a martyr. He dies for what he believes, for what he witnesses to. And even in the face of that oppression, the church in Pergamum held fast to the name of Jesus, held fast to the faith that Jesus was the one who would save. They were willing to continue to identify as followers of Jesus, as Christians, in the face of this kind of persecution. So I want you to see an encouragement in Jesus' commendation. Jesus celebrates this church's wins. He looks at them and says, here's what I want to celebrate. You you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even when persecution showed up. Jesus celebrates your wins, even your old wins. How about that? How about the fact that Jesus celebrates your wins, including your old wins? He starts this letter off by saying, I know where you live. I know your situation. I know your story. I know the road that you've had to walk. I know the challenges you've faced. I'm not ignorant to what's gone on in your life. So you might be here and you might be, you might be saying, yeah, but do you know how much I've had to go through? J- Jesus' answer is, yes, I do. I do know. I, know. I know all about your story. I know every bit of it. He knows the path that you've had to walk. He knows when you've done the right thing, even when it was hard to do the right thing. Even when you had every excuse not to do the right thing. Jesus knows all about that. He sees all of that and he celebrates it. He celebrates your wins. Even your old ones from years ago. Wins that you've probably forgotten. Jesus celebrates those wins. Do do you think that Jesus has a short memory when it comes to you? Do you think he only remembers the bad stuff? Do you think that Jesus only remembers your failures? Well, here's a declaration that he remembers and celebrates your wins. This should be an encouragement to every one of us. Well, as is his, his pattern, he offers a commendation, and then he turns his attention and he gives them a critique, a, a, somewhat of a, a confrontation. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. He says, but I have, I have this against you. I have a few things against you. Some there are holding to this false teaching. Some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Maybe it'd be easy to to miss this, but I want you to see that Jesus uses the same word in his confrontation as he did in his commendation. In his commendation, he says, you held, you, you hold to my name. And in the confrontation, he says, you hold, some of you hold, to false doctrine. He uses that same word, hold. It appears that this church held on to Christ's name, but they were simultaneously allowing some in their church family to hold to false teaching. And Jesus brings up the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we've seen the Nicolaitans before. Jesus referenced them at the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 6. So Jesus points out these, the, the, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And, and, and my, my, I think the best way to understand this is that they're the same group. 
that the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans, it's the same people. It's the same doctrine. He's referencing Balaam from the Old Testament, and he's saying the Nicolaitans are doing the same thing. They're teaching the same way that Balaam from the Old Testament did. Now, who's Balaam? Who's Balaam from the Old Testament? What's going on? Well, if you remember, uh, when we introduced this series, we talked about the fact that the book of Revelation is reaching back into the Old Testament all the time. It's, it's over one time per verse that, that Revelation is inferring or referring back to the Old Testament. And here's an example. Uh, Jesus is looking back at the Old Testament and he grabs this prophet named Balaam. And you can read about Balaam in Numbers 22, uh, number, yeah, Numbers 22 through 24, uh, and a couple other chapters he's referenced as well. And, um, you know, I, I, many of you know, I, I, I grew up in the church. And uh, back when I was a kid, which is a really long time ago, um, it's like uh, just it felt like the only version of the Bible was the King James version of the Bible. And I'm sure that was not true, but that's what it felt like. And um, the story of Balaam is like one of those snicker stories where kids can't quite keep it together because uh, Balaam is a prophet, and it's kind of crazy. He's a prophet that really has a hard time obeying God, and God uses his donkey uh, to correct Balaam, and he actually has his donkey speak to Balaam. But, you know, in the King James, the donkey is, is referred to as an ass. And so as a kid... And you're hearing this story about Balaam, and you're hearing his donkey talk, but they're not using the word donkey. It's quite a, uh, it's quite a memorable story that all of us kind of thought was funny to retell. Um, but you can read about it if you'd like to in Numbers 22, uh, in, in chapters 22 through 24. Uh, but what Jesus is talking about, what, what's the problem with Balaam that Jesus is pointing to? And it's, it's worth uh, taking a moment here. So there's a king named Balak. And Jesus references Balak. And, and, and Balak is the king. And here's what Balak wants. Balak wants Balaam, the prophet, to come and give a bad prophecy over the people of Israel. So the king you know, calls Balaam over and says, I want you to curse the people of God. I want you to curse the nation of Israel. And Balaam's like, all right, you're paying good enough money. I'll curse them. So Balaam goes. And he goes in front of the people, and he goes to curse them. And when he goes to talk, he cannot say negative words. He can only bless the people of God. He cannot force himself to curse the people of God. Uh, a few years ago, there was a movie with Jim Carrey in it called Liar, Liar. And at the beginning of the movie, he, he makes some sort of a promise that he'll never lie again. And through the rest of the movie, he, cannot, he literally cannot lie. The entire movie, every time he talks to anyone, he tells them the blunt truth about every single thing, no matter what it is. And it's kind of like that. Ba Balaam's in this situation, and when he goes to speak to the people of Israel, God does not allow him to curse the people of Israel. He can only bless the people of Israel. Well, Balak the king gets more and more and more frustrated with Balaam because Balaam keeps blessing them, and Balak wants them cursed. So Balaam cooks up an idea, the prophet cooks up an idea. And it, it seems like, based on some New Testament passages, Balaam was tempted because there was a significant amount of money involved. And here's, here's what Balaam decides to do. Balaam suggests to the king, here's a way that we can curse the people. What if you invite the men of Israel 
to attend the idolatrous feasts and tempt them with the beautiful foreign women at those feasts. Then they'll fall to temptation and then, they, then God will have justified anger, justified judgment against his people. And sure enough, that's what they do. Now, Jesus here in Revelation chapter 2 is looking at the Nicolaitans and he's saying the Nicolaitans are doing the same thing to you. The Nicolaitans are not forcing you to, they're tempting you to. The Nicolaitans are laying before you this way of life that is contrary to God's good design, but they're telling you it's good. They're they're tempting you into it. They're wooing you into this different uh, journey, into this different path. They were inviting the followers of Jesus into idolatrous activities in the city of Pergamum. And they're telling them it's okay to live this way. One of the, one of the uh, it, it lasted for a long time, but it was around in the first century, was temple prostitution. And it does appear that the Nicolaitans were encouraging Christians that temple prostitution was an okay activity to be involved in. So sexual promiscuity, the Nicolaitans are, are in the church and they're teaching the people in the church and they're telling them, it's okay for you to live this way. We, you, know, you, you think God's against it, but God's not against it. Come, come take a look. Come check it out. Very similar to the way that Balaam said, just get them in the door. Just, just get, get them exposed to it. They'll pick it themselves. They'll choose it themselves. They were putting stumbling blocks before the followers of Jesus. Now look, in, in the Old Testament and here, the people are still responsible for their choices. We're, we're tempted all the time. We don't go a day without temptation. We are, we are responsible for our decisions. We don't get to look at the situation and be like, it's not my fault, I got tempted. No, I, I still have agency. I'm still responsible. I still have the responsibility to say no to what is wrong. But those who are putting the stumbling blocks before the followers of Jesus, Jesus condemns as well. So we're responsible for our choices, but Jesus is saying, hey, church, why are you putting up with this? Hey, church, why are you putting up with that influence in your midst? Why, why are you letting the Nicolaitans do this to you? Why, why are you letting them have the voice that, that tempts and woos and encourages something contrary from God's good design? Now, look, the list of challenges that we face in Traverse City, Michigan in the year 2022 are different than the challenges that the church in Pergamum faced in the first century. We, we recognize that. The, the list is different. But the dynamics are still at play. There's always a voice within the body of Christ wooing us and inviting us to, to disregard God's good way, God's good standards. In, in other words, we're always dealing with external temptation, the general culture of Pergamum, And we're dealing with internal temptation. People within our midst who are offering us a way of living that is contrary to the way that God would call us to live. So look, put these letters together. We should love Jesus. That's what he says to Ephesus. We should love Jesus. Our hearts should be hot towards Jesus. We we should be willing to suffer for Jesus. That's what he says to the church at Smyrna. Suffering has an end date. Joy doesn't. Don't quit. But here, 
We're called to believe in him and to hold on to his truth. To protect each other from error. To have the willingness, the the courage to stand up to false teaching. You know, John Stott puts this as a, a kind of a pairing. He says that love becomes sentimental if it's not strengthened by the truth. And truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. And so one of the ways to think about these seven letters is if you mashed all of these seven letters together, you would have a whole church. You'd have a whole healthy church. So Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, don't let your hearts grow cold. But he says to the church at Pergamum, stand up for the truth. Care about the truth. Care about holiness. And so John Stott takes these two ideas of of love and truth or unity and holiness. And he says they they both have to matter. You know, a couple years ago, there was a a scholar named N.T. Wright. And he he spent a lot of his his career on on, on studying Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he was uh, doing a little book tour. And he got asked in an interview... You know, uh, Dr. Wright, if, if Paul was here right now and he was asked to critique the church in the West in the 21st century, what do you think the Apostle Paul would say about our church? What would the Apostle Paul's critique be? And N.T. Wright answered this. He said, I think Paul would be shocked at our disunity and even more shocked by how little we care. And Paul would be shocked at our lack of holiness, but even more shocked by how little we care. And then N.T. Wright goes on to say something like this. It's a crazy idea to try to do both holiness and unity, both truth and love. Choosing to do one is easy, because if you choose only holiness, then you just cut out whoever doesn't obey. Whoever does something wrong, you just chuck them. We're about holiness. We don't care about anybody else. You do something wrong, you're out. We stay holy. We cut off the bad pieces. That's easy. And if you say, well, we'll just do unity. Well, that's easy too. Because then you just ignore what everyone does. And you can live any way you want and do anything you want. And it's fine because we love each other. We're one. We're staying together. But N.T. Wright says, like, Jesus' idea is that we do both of those things. Do you know how astronomically hard it is to do both of those things? And yet that's what Jesus is calling his church to be about. To care about both unity and holiness. About love and truth. Is it possible that this church in Pergamum is deeply committed to love? Deeply committed to unity? But they are holding to that at the cost of truth. At the cost of holiness. That they're allowing these false teachers to remain in their body because they want to be unified. They want to love one another, but it's a misunderstanding of the full picture. Is it possible? Is it possible that Sojourn is? Is it possible that you are? You know, the way that the Bible talks about truth and love, Paul at one point in time says, speak the truth in love. And the point is, there is no truth without love. And there is no love without truth. It's a false dichotomy. You can't pick one and be faithful. It's both. And it's hard. And I would like to make the case that it might be the hardest. 
of the things that we talk about in these seven letters, in our current cultural moment, to hold to holiness, to hold to truth, to confront false teaching, our current cultural moment does not take kindly to that. Our current cultural moment loves unity and loves love, and we should. But a whole church is going to care about truth and holiness too. And Jesus looks at this church in Pergamum and he looks at this church in Traverse City and he says, you got to care about that. If you want to be a whole church, you got to care about that. We'll ask, what do we do about it? We'll move quickly through this. Jesus' instruction. He gives them a call and the call is to repent. You know, to repent means that you turn from something. And it's not just turning from bad deeds and turning to good deeds. It's turning from trusting in yourself to trusting in God. It's a reorientation of your dependence. It's a reorientation of your trust. That you're giving up yourself as king and you're trusting Jesus as your king. This, this call to repent actually involves you seeing it and turning from it. Do, do you see it? Do, do you see these dynamics at play in your life? Do you see how much the culture is trying to push you into a certain mold? In some ways, this is a fork in the road for the church of Pergamum. Will this church have the courage to let Jesus evaluate them from his perspective in spite of their cultural surroundings? You know, every culture on earth has parts of it that align with God's good way because humanity is made in the image of God. And so every culture is going to have some dynamics at play that align with God's good way. But because every human being is scarred by the fall, every culture then also has parts of it that don't align with God's good way, that need to be confronted and need to be corrected. Easy examples in our current cultural moment would be the subject matter of race relations and sexual identity. In so many ways, it depends on what city you live in. You know, I, I'm, I'm a pastor, and so I've got a lot of pastor friends. I know pastors who have lost their jobs because they thought that pursuing racial reconciliation was important. They weren't living in blue cities. They were living in red rural areas. And because they thought that racial reconciliation was important, their congregations were like, no, and off you, know, off you go. We're, 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 you know, your services are no longer needed. I also know pastors who have been let go from their jobs because they actually taught what God has to say about sexual ethics and sexual identity and traditional historic marriage. And they've been let go from their jobs. And typically, they've not been in red rural areas. They've been in blue cities. You see, the cultural pressures are different depending on where you live. Jesus says, I know. I know what city you're in. I know what it's like to be in New York. I know what it's like to be in Washington, D.C. I know what it's like to be in Traverse City, Michigan. I know what it's like to be in Tokyo. I know what it's like to be in Moscow. I know what it's like to be in Kiev. Jesus knows the challenges that you're facing, and the call is, will you align your life and walk in obedience? Will you turn from it? And such a big part of being able to repent is being able to see it. There's an author named James Davison Hunter, and he says this idea that culture is powerful because you can't see it. Your culture is just, it's just the way things are. You just think of it as, well, that's just the way it is. No, 
That's not just the way it is. God has something to say about it. And he invites this church to repent. He calls this church to repent. And he calls us to repent too. Our culture has a mold that it wants to push us into. Romans chapter 12 tells us about this. And God says, I've got a better plan. Instead of being shoved into that mold, I want to transform you into the image of Jesus. So the call is to repent. He gives a consequence. He says, I'm going to war against them. Uh, Jesus returns to his opening description here of the sword in his mouth. And I know we're running a little late here, but we, we need to talk about this because it's very, very heavy. Jesus is referring to the truth that he speaks. And as hard as this is, please don't miss it. Jesus is saying that his own words, which give life to anyone who will receive them, will one day become words that bring judgment to those who reject them. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, The one who rejects me does not receive my words, and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus says, church at Pergamum, sojourn church, you, you, you need to repent. And if you don't, my words, the words of life for anyone who will receive them, those same words will become the words of judgment. They, they, will, they will hang over you. Jesus says, I will war against them. This goes back to that question of a one-dimensional Jesus. Jesus loves us more than we can imagine, but Jesus is a judge. Jesus does have something to say about your heart and about where you've put your hope, where you've put your faith. Well, Jesus again gives them a promise. He says, for those who conquer, they will be given hidden manna, a white stone, with a new name on it. Now, if you know what any of those mean, you want to come on up here and, and tell us. Um, here, here's, here's the, these are all confusing, actually. So maybe a way to think about it is this. The culture might reject you, but Jesus is not going to reject you. The culture might reject you. The culture might hate you for what you believe, but Jesus is not going to reject you. All three of these are pointing to a great reward that is coming to those who persevere, for those who hold Jesus' name, who hold faith in Christ, who conquer the Greek word Nike. Well, what, what is this? What, what's coming? Here it is, the hidden manna. Well, the hidden manna, you know, you, if you know manna in the Old Testament, it's this miraculous bread from heaven that showed up in the desert and, and sustained the people of God when they had no other food. Well, that points us to the ultimate bread. Manna was this heavenly bread. The ultimate heavenly bread is Christ himself. And this might be an inference that on the last day, we are going to get access to Christ in a way that we've never had access to Christ before. That in a sense right now, he feels like hidden manna. It's like we see him dimly. We don't see him clearly. But the day is coming when we're going to feast. And we will feast on the bread of heaven, Christ himself. The white stone. Uh, it, history tells us that white stones were used as a ticket to banquets. It also tells us that white stones were used by judges when they declared someone innocent. They would throw a white stone. And commentators are not clear on which one Jesus is referring to. But if it is a ticket to a banquet, it might be the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
this, this grand feast that we get to be part of uh, with God in, in heaven? If it's a judge throwing a stone down and declaring you innocent, then that's the declaration that if you've trusted in this Christ to save you, that he will, that he actually declares you innocent and welcomed, washed clean before the God of heaven. And he also says there's a new name written on this stone. And it's not clear if the new name is a new name about Jesus, because later in Revelation, we find out that actually no one knows Jesus' name. That's what it says in Revelation 19. So the rock may be revealing something about Jesus that we've never seen before, that we've never heard before. Or the name on the stone could be more personal. It could be that you get a white stone with a new name for you. Where Jesus gives you a new name, like he did so many people on the pages of the Bible. Declaring something new about you. Giving you this rich identity rooted in him. While we might not be sure what they all mean, they are all pointing to eternal rewards. In other words, the best is yet to come. And then Jesus uses his phrase, whoever has an ear to hear, let them hear it. Now, as we turn to the table, I want you to consider that while all these rewards are future rewards, there are ways in which as the people of God, we get to taste them in small ways right now. And I just want maybe just to invite you as you come and, and take the bread this morning, think about this as, as, as hidden manna. That in this small little way, I mean, you're going to go eat lunch. This is not going to fill you up. This small little way, you, you, you get to partake in Christ, the ultimate bread of heaven, Christ himself. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you are invited to taste the bread. Come take the cup today. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, there's prayers in your bulletin. There will be prayers on the screen. And we invite you to consider your next step with the God of heaven. Servers, if you'd please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. And we recognize the, the weightiness of the call that Jesus puts in front of this church. A call to both be loving, but to care about truth, to care about holiness. God, would you, would you help us? It is easy to turn a blind eye. It is easy to ignore what it is that you have called us, how it is that you've called us to live in this world. God, would you give us courage to trust you, to trust your good design, to walk in your good way, to invite others to do it with us. God, that this community right here, the church, this church, Sojourn Church, would be a place where people are helped to walk faithfully, to hold, hold to the right guy, to, this, to, to, to your name, to Jesus, the Son of God, and to also put our faith in that Jesus as the one and true Savior of the world, in whose name we pray. Amen.